lights over my Look over here Welcome to another episode of Checkmate, a political podcast from Tenement Yard Media. You can follow us on Twitter at tenementyard underscore, and you can visit our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com. I'm the host for this episode. My name is Paige, and in this episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. Ishtar Gavaya, a researcher at Capri and the lead researcher on the report we're going to be discussing today. Dr. Ishtar Govaya is a senior lecturer in epidemiology at the Caribbean Institute for Health Research, UIMONA, and a research psychologist specializing in mixed methods and implementation science. She joined the Caribbean Institute for Health Research in 2015 after working from 2019 as a lecturer in applied psychology with the psychology unit within the Faculty of Social Sciences at UIMONA. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Govayo. Thanks for having me, Paige. Looking forward to the conversation. Great. Um, so the Capri report titled Sun, Sand and Sustainability, the way forward for Caribbean tourism, um, that outlined a number of things, made recommendations just as it relates to um, tourism, not just in Jamaica, but in the entire Caribbean region. Would you mind expounding on the data given in the report, which outlines the economic contribution that the sector is making to the development of the Caribbean region? Sure. In looking at the work that has been produced by a number of different entities in the region, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Caribbean Development Bank, a number of other key stakeholders that typically produce these types of data, national sources, etc. What we understand is that the average direct contribution of the tourism sector is approximately 14% of the GDP across the Caribbean region. And then there's an additional 20% or so that accounts for indirect contribution, which means, in other words, that the sector has both formal entities contributing and informal entities contributing. And those entities, depending upon how they're measured, can suggest that the sector contributes to up to a third of the region's gross domestic product. Okay, thank you. And I'm really glad that you brought up the informal sector, um, because as we know, especially with COVID, the informal sector has been probably one of the most hardest hit sectors. Can you talk a bit about the challenges that the informal sector and the um, micro, small, medium-sized enterprises in the tourism sector have faced before and during the pandemic? Sure. When, well, when we think about the tourism sector, we typically think about huge hotels, we think about beautiful beaches, we think about um, these all-inclusives. But in speaking to the various stakeholders that we engaged with, we got a very strong sense of the important role of the informal sector and the important role of uh, micro, small, and medium enterprises. So micro, small, and medium enterprises, we could actually think of them in those two categories as well, that they're formal, micro, small, and medium enterprises, and they're informal MSMEs, which is what we refer to as micro, small, and medium enterprises. And the informal sector, um, uh, within the tourism sector, the informal subsector of the MSMEs really struggle with a lot of issues related to representation. They are often not around the table when some of these dialogues are taking place that have acute relevance for 
for them and their role in the sector. And oftentimes the formal sector is what we see the most. Those, those players tend to have figuratively and literally a seat at the table. So when there are governments convening, when there are ministers and ministerial offices having discussions about priorities for the sector, when there are financing and funding agencies talking about what types of mechanisms to, to generate and to create, the formal sector the formal MSMEs are often the ones that benefit most from those conversations and are often the ones that are represented the most in those conversations. Mm -hmm. So that has implications then, as you can imagine, for for their needs and how their priorities are actually represented in these spaces. And if the informal MSMEs are not even represented in those spaces, like we saw, for example, with some of these relief packages. Those relief packages often, we found that persons who were employed in, self-employed most of the time, in the, the in the informal sector, they weren't even eligible for some of those relief packages because their entities weren't registered, because their entities weren't paying taxes, because they were sole traders, and so not eligible for some of these types of relief packages and other benefits, etc. during this period. So it it's a clear demarcation in terms of, of priorities and needs. Yeah. Um, and can you just, for the listeners, just a bit give us an example of what an informal MSME would, would be, for example? Sure. Um, so this is, uh, you know, you can have people working in the informal economy, and you, you're, I'm sure you're very well aware of this doing policy work yourself. So the, well, I'll talk first about the informal economy, and then I'll talk specifically about informal MSMEs, because even within the formal sector, the formal actors in the tourism sector, for example, a large hotel, an all-inclusive hotel, That all-inclusive hotel could actually have formal employees on its payroll and informal workers on the payroll as well. The formal workers are the ones that will be getting the benefits and the, 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 the types of packages and resources that only formalized employees get. But as you can imagine, in a large hotel, there's often people that don't qualify for, in different roles that don't qualify for some of these types of packages. So there are, there's the, 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 some of the cleaners, some of the very essential workers, some mm-hmm. of the people that are doing the grudge work in the, uh, on the hotel grounds. And those people are often paid on a part-time basis. They're paid without any type of, of health insurance or pension guarantees, et cetera. So that's just to, to, to bring a level of complexity to understanding the formal sector. Now, when we think about uh, micro, small, and medium enterprises, we're thinking about um, entities that have 20 or fewer employees. And some of these can be sole traders. So, for example, you could have... Um, delivery, um, virtual delivery um, and and ordering types of services that perhaps, you know, it's it's one or two people who are controlling this type of sector, um, subsector within the tourism sector. You could have food vendors, you could have agricultural producers, you could have poultry um, producers and suppliers, you could have people who are photographers, in the in the wedding destination wedding type of sector you can have persons in multiple types of roles like that who you know are in even in in the arts culture and events type of sect subsector with craft vendors entertainers um, man-made types of attractions as well mm-hmm. so in addition to thinking about about those, then you have the smaller types of manufacturing entities as well. People who do things like baked goods, who make furniture for some of these um, inns and establishments, people who are running a small um, bed and breakfast, people who are actually in doing Airbnb. And so that's the, those are the types of distinctions that we're talking about when we talk about 
um, micro, small and medium enterprises, and particularly when we talk about the informal sector, because often those those players um, are not formalized. And what we mean by formalized, they're not registered, they're not paying taxes. And so those types of things mean that they can't actually take out loans, they can't be be privileged to some of the things like these relief packages that we were just talking about um, that are offered. And because those tend to be offered to those players that are registered, yeah. those players that are paying taxes, etc. Yeah, exactly. And I want everyone who's listening to kind of think about that and think about what you know about tourism in the Caribbean and the people that you interact with as people living in the Caribbean or people visiting the Caribbean. And most of these people do work in the informal sector. Um, the jerk mm-hmm. chicken man, the man outside the hotel selling jelly, even the people possibly cleaning mm-hmm. the hotel. And these people don't have benefits. Um, and when disasters like COVID strike and their relief packages given, these people aren't counted in the money exactly. or whatever kind of relief um, is given. So I just wanted to really like make that very clear for the listeners so they can really understand what it is that's going on here. Um, now, in the report, um, it states that more than a year since the region confirms its first case of COVID-19 um, has caused the industry losses 10 times larger than experienced during the 2008-2009 financial crisis with projections for continued economic um, uncertainty in the region. Can you talk a bit more um, and expound on the data given in the report that outlines the effect of COVID-19 on the tourism uh, sector on Caribbean economies? Sure, sure. We spoke to stakeholders. We spoke to approximately 39 stakeholders from different entities. So we spoke to funders, we spoke to owners of establishments, larger establishments, smaller establishments. We spoke to development agencies, we spoke to um, academics, and, and across the board, what we were hearing is that clearly, as we all anticipate and, and expect with countries' borders being closed, and not just us, but what we call what's referred to in, in the sector as the supplying market, um, so where not our borders being closed is one thing, but their borders being closed is also something else and being placed on, for example, their um, list of countries people are advised not to go to is also something else that has been affecting. So it's been affecting tourist arrivals, it's been affecting occupancy rates, it's been affecting reservations for for air travel, it's been affecting bookings. Um, in some cases, stakeholders reported a decline of up to 100%. Um, okay. And and as you would imagine, that's that that was in the period immediately after the the announcement of COVID in the region. Um, so you saw a clear cutoff in terms of the countries and their different decision makers saying we're we're prohibiting entry into our countries. And then that clearly had implications for the the persons who you would have expected to be enjoying that time because before this pandemic, the particularly in Jamaica and in so many other Caribbean countries, the the players in the sector were very very enthusiastic because they had finally been starting to see uh, a lift, uh, an increase in the number of. Um, the number of visitors to the region, mm-hmm. a way in which that their debts that they had incurred after that financial crisis in 2008, 2009, that that had really decimated so many of those players. And I'm not, I'm not talking just about the smaller players, but so many players just across the board. And they had been reeling from those effects for a while. And it was just in the 2019, 2018, that so many of them had started to rebound. So this pandemic and the just the hard stop, the complete um, closing of the sector really has affected and, and affected so acutely at the very beginning so many of these players. 
Thank you for that. Um, just to switch gears a bit, um, we're talking mm-hmm. about the Caribbean and the issue that we cannot ignore, of course, is climate change and the impact that that will have. Can you talk to me a bit about the tourism sector and environmental sustainability in the wake of climate change and what that could possibly look like for the region? Yeah, I mean, just think of the the volcano, the volcanic eruption yeah. in St. Vincent and the Grenadines the other day. We were were so prone to the effects of hurricanes, and and this last one we can see also that even as a tropical storm, it's just shown the weaknesses in our infrastructures. And I'm not talking about infrastructures that are direct to the tourism sector, but infrastructure that's really pervasive because the tourism sector is embedded in in just the functioning of a country. So if the drains aren't cleared, um, if the gullies aren't cleared, um, if there is no uh, appropriate landscaping and agricultural setup in terms of the landscaping, you could have mudslides, etc. So all of those things have massive implications. The earthquakes, the the levels of... uh, heat in the atmosphere, the carbon emissions, all of these things actually are very intricately related to not the, not just the tourism sector, but the health sector. Yeah. And what COVID has really been showing is this huge interaction and interrelations among so many sectors that are often in silos. So when we think about climate, for example, we, we, we tend to, to have that very distant from thinking about the tourism sector. But when you think about climate, climate also has impacts in in different subsectors in the tourism sector, for example, in community types of of settings and and community types of tourism. It also, ecotourism, you know, when you're thinking about mountains, when you're thinking about walking tours, mm-hmm. those types of things actually rely on pay, on paying close attention to how your country is functioning in the context of the, the broader climate issues. Um, and and the, the way in which the Caribbean is tackling environment and climate concerns, even in some places we saw so much... Um, strong and 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 rapid types of advances so many of the players that we spoke to reported for example that they've been using solar panels and especially in Barbados and they talked as well about really modeling things like agrotourism um, and things like yachting tourism as an alternative too these are all possibilities that that go hand in hand with thinking of climate, that go hand in hand with thinking of, for example, um, the best ways of taking care of your environment, for example, like with community-based tourisms. What we also heard, um, thinking about climate, thinking about environment as well, is is that the, the cruise ship sector really, it's, it's such a contested, um, subsector in the tourism sector because often countries are are really wrestling to show that they can bring in these these cruise ships uh, at their various ports. But then when you look at the return on that investment, you're questioning it because they do such damage to not just the 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 seas and the oceans, but what what is it that is really bringing in? Because they people just jump off the, the cruise ship for yeah. a short period of time. They don't really engage with the communities and then they jump back on onto the cruise ship. So instead of thinking more in terms of longer stays, um, the cruise ship is not just, in a sense, um, problematic for the environment and by extension, climate, yeah. but also problematic in terms of thinking about what is sustainable financially, what is sustainable in type in terms of making spaces for for a more diversified tourism sector? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It seems like a almost a, a no brainer, if you will, because if someone's coming off on a cruise ship and they're stopping in Jamaica, maybe they buy a bag, maybe they buy a keychain, and then they're 
off again mm-hmm. versus someone who's coming here to stay for even even if it is three or four days like their their hotel and food and transportation mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it's just way more revenue and um all around a better investment to, to be able to get revenue that way yeah and if they stay even longer than that page because um we're we're thinking of longer stays so there's a whole body of of work and a whole um, set of conversations happening around these what they are referred to as digital nomads but what some other persons are talking about as well are not just nomads which which come and go you know for the brief types of stays and maybe the brief stays even three weeks four weeks but more thinking in terms of digital expats so people who can come to different co- countries, especially in this case, as we're talking about the Caribbean, come to these countries and actually spend time. And their spending time is linked to their spending money, to their investing, to their connecting with communities. And if we're able to, to diversify what we think of as tourism and the resources that are in place for that, and by resources, again, we need to be creative and we need to be innovative and realize that this doesn't mean just sticking to what is overtly tourism, but thinking, for example, how strong is our digital infrastructure island-wide? Yeah. How strong are the 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 legal and um, visa travel restrictions or requirements? You know, do do we have things in place that would allow people? to come and to stay with us for two months, for three months, um, for a year, for more time. So those types of of innovations in terms of the broader societal functioning has implications for thinking about how people coming into our countries for longer periods of time could actually be be very much um, facilitating of some of our growth and development goals as a country. Yeah, and I think that you're absolutely right. It requires a lot of creative thinking because it's not traditional tourism. You know, there's quote like the I really love that you put a name to it, digital expats. Um, myself being one of those people, I work for an American company online and I'm in Jamaica working. Big up Digicel, because my internet is working mm-hmm. and has been this entire time. <laughs> I'm shocked, shocked, I tell you. But it, it, it requires things that the general population of these countries can benefit from as well. So if you're exactly. fortifying the digital infrastructure, making it safer, fortifying legal institutions, it's not just tourists that can benefit from this, but the average Jamaican, the average Bayesian, the average Trinidadian, like everyone right. can benefit from this. And you're still getting mm-hmm. the tourist money that is so, um, so much sought after. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We have to take care of our own, you know, um, and the the outward facing is helpful, but we really need to focus on the, the strengthening of our our inner selves as well. And by inner selves, I'm, I'm referring to our countries because the, the sector is as strong as the country is and the countries are. And then that's also linked to thinking more about how, as a region, we can really present a united front in some ways. And, and this is not to take away from each country's unique product and draw Mm -hmm. because what we've seen is that people will go to different caribbean countries you know once they're in the region they want to go and explore if somebody comes to jamaica most of the times they want to go on this to see other caribbean countries they want to go and take a a trip to saint vincent and the grenadines or dominica or saint lucia or barbados or trinidad etc or you know one of the the abc islands they they want to to spend time throughout the region so saying that we need to strengthen each country's infrastructure and resources is not saying that that country is just going to hold on to those longer term stay tourists Mm -hmm. it's saying that you have more of an opportunity here to for for this person these people that are coming for these longer stays to actually invest in the region and and as a matter of fact to, to draw others to the region too 
No, exactly. You're absolutely right. And if everything works well in this one country and there is, as I have been advocating for, some easier way to travel from Caribbean country to Caribbean country, mm-hmm. like inter-Caribbean mm-hmm. travel, like it all just flows seamlessly and makes tourism better and other people's lives better. And um, as I think the loan, sometimes I feel like the loan advocate on the internet for CARICOM, it's like there's so much room to grow and do things please just mm-hmm. do it if mm-hmm. any of you are listening um yeah i think the you know the, the thing is is politics and and the agendas that governments have which i'm not saying are you know some surreptitious um controversy uh oriented agenda but it's just sometimes governments are making changes and plans and strategies that we are not privy to as 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 a general public, you know, and as yeah. as gen pop, as we would say in in the health sciences, and so we have to think of how to to advocate for the type of of movement and access that we want, while while sometimes um, pushing against the current that we're seeing from different governments, um, and sometimes speaking up for what it is we want in terms, like you're saying, you do. You know, you have to advocate for these things if you really want it. And the adv- advocating needs to be plugged into, it needs to be informed. You know, it needs to be informed by data. Um, and it, it's it's having a face and having a, a story is useful. Yep. But when governments are making decisions, um, they, re- they really rely on data. And it's the data that will be pushing them to, th- to see, for example. And I think COVID is a, an amazing um, opportunity for this type of, of evolution because what we've seen is that, that with the pandemic, the leaders in the region have been able to convene virtually and have been thinking more collectively about some of these issues. Yeah. I mean, that the rapidity with which the, the national leaders were able to pull together this COVID task force and to execute some of the, the, the changes that needed to happen in terms of figuring out the, the um, online systems for when persons are coming into the region and trying to harmonize around that. Those are some of the types of innovations that we really need to be seeing at a regional level more of. And the types of things that you were talking about just now too, that would facilitate um, movement and thus facilitate more investment in different countries. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to shift a bit more back to the the report, um, it states that stakeholders share the need for diversification away from tourism on the edge, um, mm-hmm. where attractions are concentrated on coastlines and over tourism, which can deteriorate the physical environment, quality of life, for citizens and the experience of visitors to a different model of tourism, a non-traditional model of tourism, like the mm-hmm. one that we just discussed and like the many Capri outlines, ecotourism, cannabis tourism, senior tourism, medical tourism, mm-hmm. business tourism, health and wellness tourism. Would you mind picking one or two of those and kind of fleshing out what that, what that kind of tourism would look like? Sure, sure. Um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about senior tourism. Um, one of the stakeholders, uh, who is the owner of a smaller entity, was speaking a lot about um, his experience on the western side of the island and how what he'd noticed was that the tourists that were coming, um, it was the same tourists year after year because they just love the place, Right. But if it's the same tourists year after year, people are aging. So they're they're getting older. Yeah. They're and they, they need different types of services, different types of um, resources. And by resources, I mean even infrastructure of a place. Because they may love the, the place on the sea cliff, but if the place on the sea cliff just has these high um, stairs that are, you know, stone cut stairs and it doesn't have, for example, wheelchair access or it doesn't have any handrails, for example. Um, It doesn't have things that would facilitate um, comfort and ease of access even in the rooms, uh, not just on the the wider property, in the restaurant spaces, in the common spaces. If it it seems to be catered and oriented just towards a youth-driven market, then it's less appealing, right? They may feel like they should just 
stay back at home. They they shouldn't bother to make that trip anymore as much as they love the country. So uh, that's one example. So when we think about the, the traditional inns and hotels that people may go to, but there are also other types of possibilities, you know, thinking about retirement communities uh, and and really thinking about building spaces because uh, Jamaica's population is aging as well. You know, in, in by 2050, approximately 22% of the population is going to be 65 and older. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it definitely classifies as an aging society. So even if we wanted local or domestic tourism to increase, that means paying attention to things and access it, access and resources and infrastructure that even our local people can um, benefit from and and more widely instead of the individual we could think more in terms of communities are there some types of retirement communities for example or short stays or um, day centers daycare centers activity centers because those are things that even for example if an intergenerational family is traveling whether it's a domestic one or a, an international international a family that's coming from international places they may want different types of of activities um, to be oriented towards their older family members and or their their older travel partners so it's those types of things for example with the senior that we we mean when we're talking about senior tourism and longer stays even you know expat retirees Um, so we could think about that Um, and then another one that we we often don't talk I mean there is an increasing an increasing um at least lip service in some cases, you know, I think that there, there are definitely, there are definitely players that are making huge advances in this, but something like agro-tourism. So where people can come to a country and work in a voluntary capacity or in a paid capacity and be building crops and, and producing produce and doing that type of work. Um, but that requires that uh, uh, in, in an eco-resort type of setting, there is uh, investment in that. And sometimes what that also requires in turn then is that the, the entities are able to access loans. But agritourism, well, especially before the pandemic, was not a sexy type of tourism for these financing agencies, these funders, to invest in. Yep. Um, one of the stakeholders with whom we spoke was saying that he went to uh, a lending agency um, about investing in his agro-tourism oriented business and product. And they said, no, you know, we don't do that. You know, that doesn't seem like it's it's going to be something that will be reaping a high return on investment. Wow. So that's that's an opportunity that's there that is uh, particularly when you think of the landscape and the the huge agricultural potential of so many of the Caribbean countries, um, it's it's something that is possible, but it requires uh, multi-sectoral, again, creative thinking and thinking that is willing to embrace the risk as well. So even if they don't know about it, that at least they can start to expand their their ideas of what is possible with a type of tourism like that yeah absolutely and i and i think that that again like um the digital expats that we mentioned before would improve things for everyone in the country because now you're producing Mm -hmm. more and farmers are getting their cut and the people in the market Mm -hmm. are able to get in on it so i think that it it like you said and i can't repeat this enough it requires creative thinking like forward mm-hmm. future thinking and i think that um i'll say this personally i think that the model for tourism in the caribbean is extremely outdated and it's we're moving mm-hmm. so fast as a globe and if the pandemic has highlighted anything it's highlighted that and i think that it's just you know i'm 
I'm absolutely okay with the Caribbean hanging on to tourism, but just move it forward like everything else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we heard that too from so many of the stakeholders that we spoke with, um, that they 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 also felt that we needed to, as as we say in the in the report, to move away from this this um, tourism on the coastline type of model and really be thinking more creatively. And and some of the stakeholders that we spoke to actually said that they they don't see tourism as it had been currently packaged to be something that would be as um as 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 helpful moving forward in the future and really we're thinking more again in terms of these longer term approaches if tourism is to to really thrive in the region and to be sustainable so educational tourism for example um, and we see this with some some tertiary level institutions yeah. as well. So yeah, it, it definitely, as you're saying, it, it requires the creativity and it requires it requires courage. Yeah. I think is the truth, um, and it requires not not just uh, not that from you know those of us who are already uh, convinced of that, but it requires the the action and the vision and the leadership of the persons that are in the positions to make those decisions and to, to lead with change because there's so many uh, Caribbean-wide agencies, um, country-specific entities and persons that are already convinced of this, right? And we, we just need to make sure that that those, those voices filter and are in, in conversation with the ones that need a little bit more of a nudge in this direction. <laughs> Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, just finally, I want you to expound on the many recommendations that um, Capri came to at the end of this report and of particular interest for me as someone who studied CARICOM in, in school are the recommendations for CARICOM. So if you wouldn't mind expounding on, on all of those. Sure. Um, well, we we really believe that CARICOM can play, and, and by we, let me say too, that this report would not have been possible were it not for the amazing um, insights, hard work, and creativity of, of the team that I work with. So I just really want to shout out to Rochelle Moore, Tiffany Palmer, Marissa Stubbs, Janelle Robinson, and Ezene Wanko, because those ladies are forces to be reckoned with. And um, we do such amazing work when we're working together. So a huge shout out to them. So when when we were talking and thinking about CARICOM, and we, we, we were speaking to so many of the different stakeholders, um, CARICOM came up a lot. And CARICOM, in its role in terms of the Council for Finance and Planning, and also as a, a, an entity, a Caribbean-wide entity that that stakeholders will listen to. You know, once once they are once they're making a statement on something. So, for example, one of the recommendations is about CARICOM's Council for Finance and Planning. And we were, mm -hmm. we've suggested that it needs to appoint a board of experts in research, sustainability, and climate change to develop grant proposals, and particularly grant proposals for large-scale project funding, because that can help to offset regional costs of moving towards alternative energy sources and with building toward more sustainable community-based attractions. So, for example, government-owned eco-resorts. Um, and again, because of the role of CARICOM with different national um, leaders, different state leaders, CARICOM can play a huge role in moving towards this. It, it can be the entity through which the funds are applied for through which the funds are gained and uh, this is one of the examples of thinking about how can we get these these great ideas funded how can we actually implement them so 
if CARICOM in with its council for finance and planning yep. can appoint this board of experts that can push us further along in the direction of some of these things happening. And another CARICOM uh, oriented recommendation is that CARICOM really in advising the Caribbean Tourism Organization and the Caribbean Hospitality and Tourism Association, they can deploy a regional digital marketing campaign. And this digital regional marketing campaign can do some of what we have been talking about. So it can highlight the individual islands and countries, their unique attractions, Mm -hmm. and that could help actually target more diverse travelers and and CARICOM advising these to Caribbean wide and Caribbean oriented sector associations and agencies and 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 players CARICOM can actually help to facilitate using each country each state's pooled resources for the planning design and rollout of this regional digital marketing campaign And the final one related to CARICOM is that we should have CARICOM appointing a commission, particularly one that helps to develop a regional standardized travel form to collect data that are pertinent. And by data that are pertinent, we're speaking to health, travel, and security data. And these data have, before the pandemic, not been linked But with the pandemic, we've seen the huge need for these data to be linked. And so if we are to take a regional type of approach to this, that would need to be, um, we would need to see the involvement of CARICOM representatives. And of course, those representatives would need to be informed by the relevant ministries. So the Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Tourism, the Ministry of National Security, because then that must interface with this, what we, we um, some, so many of the stakeholders shared about this advanced passenger information system. And so that's a, a system that really uh, focuses and collates information on travelers. And that, that information, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. is, in, is interesting and of um, core concern for CARICOM's implementation agency for crime and security so we really need to see CARICOM CARICOM's involvement um, not alone but definitely with informed by specific ministries within each of the countries um, to drive this type of a commission no thank you so much for that Um, I really appreciate you outlining those I just as someone who believes deeply in regionalism especially as it relates to the Caribbean, seeing that kind of those kinds of recommendations and just seeing regional thinking as it relates to um, tourism and other sectors is extremely, extremely amazing because as we've seen with COVID-19, these larger countries that we used to depend on have their own issues internally, um, just with external factors, climate change, et cetera, and relying on each other and moving forward as a united Caribbean community really is the future for the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And just uh, outside of your CARICOM recommendations, the one recommendation I really wanted to get into was the pre-registration incubation period for MSMEs. Mm-hmm. If you could just talk a bit more about that, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, so this this recommendation came out of speaking to stakeholders, particularly the the micro, small and medium enterprises. Um, so we spoke to sole traders, we spoke to MSMEs who um, whose whose governance and and functioning were partnerships, and what we want what they wanted us to ensure was communicated is that. They really need time where they are, a period of time where they're actually able to to get up to speed. So what this recommendation speaks to is a period of a year where these new MSMEs can be absolved from business tax and where they are actually directed to local business development agencies. Mm -hmm. And this was key because 
um, what what one of the concerns that some of the um, the seasoned stakeholders communicated was that it can't be um, too long of an incubation period because what can happen is that the entities could reformulate, you know, to try to avoid. They could rename themselves. They could re-register, etc. Yeah. So what what we've suggested is uh, something that is not going to be too um, lax, and but it definitely should support the um, the growth and the evolution of the MSMEs, yeah. where they are not feeling pressured. So they could be absolved from the business tax in terms of this pre-registration incubation period. Yeah. But in that year, they, they are directed to local business development agencies because these development agencies provide a lot of resources in terms of capacity strengthening. They help these MSMEs, whether it's a sole trader or a partnership, help them understand what do you need? What does, what does registra- registering mean in terms of your business tax? How much tax are you supposed to pay? What other types of resources should you be plugged into? Can we direct you to any of those resources? Whether it's it's accountants that are doing pro bono work, whether it is you know legal entities that are doing pro bono work, etc. Um, can we help you get your your finance management system in a way? And this is really important because um, sometimes these the particular particularly sole traders in the informal sector. They may not may not be very um, very exposed sometimes to what some of these more formal types of entities may have and and take for granted in terms of their resources. You know, they might have a lawyer on retainer, an yeah. accountant on retainer, etc., and so are able to to generate some of these requirements for registration. They may be able to understand the different tax requirements, etc., much more easily than an MSME that is just it's it's this this one person, the sole trader. This one person who is a sole trader has exactly. to be running the business, running around to different offices, and thinking about how to grow the business which is, is what the sector on the surface of it seems to want. They want the business to grow, but they have to be able to grow at their pace. And they can't grow at their pace if they're having to, to really be thinking about how do I get this stuff done? So that's, that's what that, that recommendation was meant to be addressing. No, yeah. And I think what that really is, is just supporting micro and, and small and medium businesses because exactly. a lot of these a lot of these requirements are geared and skewed towards larger businesses. And all that mm-hmm. this would be is we're going to support you until you get to the point where you can function like that. Or even if you don't to the point where you can get registered and pay your taxes and be up to date to be able to benefit from a lot of these things that the government has available. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And this, uh, this was linked to another recommendation that we made in terms of the business development agencies, because yeah. you don't want to be sending in this year these these sole traders or partnerships that are not registered. You don't want to be sending them to a business development agency. And when they reach that business development agency, they're feeling frustrated. Like, why did I use some of my time today or in this week? My time this, that is already so tight with all of these different things I'm juggling yeah. to go to this business development agency and just be be given a lot of theoretical information like, oh, it's good to do this type of thing or it's good to do that type of thing. What the stakeholders that we spoke to said that they're really interested in is hands-on um, skills training, hands-on mentoring where somebody could say, oh, I've used this online payment um, system. Yeah. Here's how it worked for me. Here's how it didn't work for me. So the, the, the recommendation related to the national business agencies is that they, they need to undertake a needs assessment that targets these MSMEs that don't yet earn a profit with a staff of 20 or fewer persons. Because in doing a needs assessment, again, the importance of data, yeah. this is how they would really be able to understand, well, what are the needs of these MSMEs? And then when they've gotten that information, and are able to understand 
the most commonly requested skills training, the most commonly requested capacity building tools, then they could plug in those, those sole traders or partnership MSMEs to volunteer mentors from the larger business community to help yeah. meet the support and training needs. Yeah, exactly. And I think that um, all the recommendations you outlined and the ones, you know, in combination with the ones we didn't outline, just all the recommendations in in the report, I really, really hope that stakeholders in the tourism industry are paying attention and listening out because I think that this does just such a great job of outlining what the future can look like for the Caribbean and just prosperity, not just for um, the tourism sector, but as we've outlined, you know, these recommendations take into account just general population of the people that live on these mm-hmm. islands. And it, it, it really just spells overall prosperity. Exactly. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Gavaya. Um, thank you for your time. Um, thank you and your team for the meaningful research that you conduct. It's always an amazing time chatting with Capri representatives. Um, just thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thank you too, Paige. And I hope that you and the rest of Tenement Yard Media really keep up the excellent work that y'all are doing because we we need to make sure that all segments of the society are aware of these things and Gen Zers are such an important and crucial sector. So the, the quality and the professionalism with which you all um, handle these types of, of, of engagements and, and the realness with which you, you talk about these issues is really so commendable and such a, a great example and inspiration for all of us. So thanks so much. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, well, this has been another episode of the Checkmate Political Podcast by Tenement Yard Media. Don't forget to check us out on social media, on Twitter at Tenement Yard underscore and on our website at www.tenementyardmedia.com. And don't forget to share the podcast with friends. Always. Yeah. Right over my love over here. Oh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Judge your best eye with the brightest light. I know you shine upon the cute and blind. God with the eyes of your truth and right.